earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me today. Friends, in light of tomorrow being Good Friday and Sunday being Easter, or as I prefer, Resurrection Day, I find myself in a quandary. This is one of my favorite seasons of the year, celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. So I have the unenviable task of attempting to share Good Friday's grand truth and Sunday's glorious truth in one program. I trust my effort will be a valiant one. You know, friends, some think of God this way. How lucky God is to dwell in heaven where everything is just sweetness and light. No weeping, pain, fear, hunger, no hatred. What could God possibly know about what humanity has endured? It seems God has led a pretty sheltered life. Well, friends, imagine with me that at the end of time, billions of people are scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Some of the groups up front talk heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. How can God judge us, one man said. What does he know about suffering, snapped a woman. She jerked back a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, and death. From another group, a black man lowered his collar. What about this? He demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime except being black. We suffocated in slave ships, were wrenched from loved ones, toiled till death gave release. All across the plain, as far as the eye could see, were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live up in heaven where there was no weeping, no pain, fear, hunger, or even any hatred. Indeed, what did God know about what human beings had been forced to endure in this world? They began saying, after all, God leads a pretty sheltered life. Each group sent out a leader, chosen because they had suffered the most. There was a black, a Jew, an untouchable from India, an illegitimate person, a victim of Hiroshima, and one from a Siberian slave camp. They met in the center of the plain and consulted with each other. Finally, they were ready to present their case. It was rather simple. Before God could be qualified to judge them, he must endure what they had endured. So they decided God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. But because he was God, they imposed certain safeguards to be sure he could not use his divine powers to help himself. 
like, let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted so that no one would know who his real father is. Let him champion a cause so just but so radical that it brings down upon him the hate, condemnation, and efforts of every major traditional and established religious authority to eliminate him. Let him try to describe what no person has ever seen, tasted, heard, or smelled. Let him try to communicate God to people. Let him be betrayed by his dearest friend. Let him be indicted on false charges, tried before a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be terribly alone and completely abandoned by every living thing. Let him be tortured and let him die. Let him die the most humiliating death with common thieves. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the great throngs of people scattered across the huge plain before God's throne. When the last one had finished, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. Because all of a sudden they all realized God had already served his sentence. Friends, God loved the world so much he didn't send an angel. God loved the world so much he didn't send a committee. God loved the world so much he did send his only son, Jesus. God became human and lived among us. Friends, we sometimes initially initially think of God the way those groups did, who summarily concluded that God leads a pretty sheltered life. You know, way out there, way up there. And there's a word for that perception, transcendence. It's a fancy word for God being far above us in many ways, seemingly distant from us. But if this is the only way we perceive God, we've left out an important piece of the puzzle, the other half of the story, the other side of the coin. Our theology is incomplete unless we also perceive God's imminence. This is our other fancy word for today. It means, for our context, very near or present with us. Friends, the Christian view of God is that the transcendent God became imminent, very near, present with us in Jesus. This is why he's called the God-man. Through the birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, we learn that God has not led a sheltered life. In that one phrase, friends, the God-man, we see and experience both the transcendence and the imminence of God. Transcendence in our word God and imminence in our word man. We may even wonder, how near is God to us? Well, Jesus said it best in John fourteen twenty three, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Then in fifteen four, Jesus adds, Abide in me, and I in you. Jesus abiding in us meant that God was as near as he could be. Friends, I'm often asked, what's so good about Good Friday? Even, why is it called Good Friday? And that's a reasonable wonder. It wasn't good for Jesus, right? It wasn't good for his followers, right? 
After all, their hopes were totally dashed to the ground, weren't they? This is what the Bible says, right? Friends, the most revealing text that for me is remarkable every time I read it and sense the despair of the moment is Luke 24, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You know the story. Remember when Jesus, after his resurrection, briefly disguises himself and tags along with these two disciples? He even asks, what are you two discussing? Then verse 17 says, they stood still, their faces downcast. Now I have to stop here. We can easily glide right past this verse and completely miss its significance. Let's unpack downcast. Listen to the variety of translations of this word. Looking sad, sadness written across their faces, looking discouraged, looking sad and gloomy, looking full of sorrow. Several translations add gloomy for a good reason. English translations make a valiant attempt to communicate the depth of this term. No single English word suffices. Combining these expressions helps us to see that these two were severely depressed. Look at verse 19 where Jesus makes another inquiry and the two answer. Jesus of Nazareth, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Did you hear that, friends? Shouldn't we read that as if we were them? But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Can you hear their gloom and doom? Their depression speaking here? Can you feel their hopes dashed to the ground? Can you hear in their voices that the crucifixion ended it all for them? The crucifixion was final. The crucifixion had stolen all their hopes for the kingdom of God to finally dawn upon Israel. The crucifixion destroyed the notion that this was their Messiah. Their Messiah, their hope had been executed. We can almost side with them and conclude that the path to the passion of the Christ was unfortunately a detour, a failed mission, a grandiose scheme gone bad, a good plan that just went awry, the result of a messianic delusion on the part of a first century teacher, sage and revolutionary with a messiah complex that came to a sad and sudden end. After all, friends, skeptics and liberal scholars level these very arguments against Christianity, attacking the Bible, the very core of its beliefs. The mainstream media even chime in by continually interviewing these liberal scholars as if they had the last word. But by carefully scrutinizing the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, we learn that actually the path to the passion of the Christ was part of a blueprint laid out before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8 tells us, All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. 
the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Acts 2, 22-24 says, Fellow Israelites, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Thankfully, Jesus' disciples later understood numerous Hebrew scriptures to be pointing to or predicting their Messiah's death and resurrection. In Acts 2, 25 through 36, Peter quotes Psalm 16. In Acts 3, 18 through 23, he quotes Deuteronomy 18. In Acts 8, 29 through 35, Philip quotes Isaiah 53. In Acts 13, 23 through 47, the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 2 and 16, Isaiah 49 and 55, and Habakkuk 1. This all further confirms from 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul draws from an obviously earlier church tradition already established. In the opening verses, he declares, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, our Old Testament, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures." Later he adds, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. If we have only hoped in Christ in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. Friends, around 1930, Nikolai Bukharin, a Russian communist leader, journeyed from Moscow to Kiev to address a large assembly. His topic, Atheism. For one solid hour he aimed his heavy atheistic artillery at Christianity, arguing and ridiculing. Finally, his tirade ended. Surveying the audience's faces, it looked like the smoldering ashes of people's faith. He then proudly asked, Are there any questions? To his surprise, one man stood up and asked to speak. He walked forward, stepped up to the platform, and stood next to the communist. The assembly was silent, breathless. This man also surveyed the crowd. Suddenly, he shouted an ancient Orthodox Christian greeting, Christ is risen! The assembly sprung to their feet, their response sounding like an avalanche. He is risen indeed! Friends, being Greek, I can tell you what that greeting is in its original language. Christos Anesti! Christ is risen! And the reply, Anesti Alethos! Literally, risen indeed, but understood as he is risen indeed. Friends, after World War II, D. William Sangster, a prominent evangelical minister in Britain, spearheaded a spiritual renewal movement. 
But in 1968, he contracted a disease that progressively paralyzed him and eventually his vocal cords. On the Easter before he died, with great pain, he scribbled a note to his daughter with the few fingers that could still move. It said, How terrible to wake up on Easter and have no voice to shout, He is risen! Far worse, to have a voice and not want to shout. One of the resurrection accounts is Matthew 28. It begins, After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Christos Anesti, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Matthew's account is important because it's the only one that records the first conspiracy theory, an alternate theory of what happened to Jesus' body. In verses 11 through 15, we read, The guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that happened. When the chief priests met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy and get you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. And friends, to this very day, in our time, alternate theories about what happened to Jesus' body abound. Skeptics and critics love to come out of the woodwork during this time and spout their so-called intelligent recreations of what happened. There are now some 17 theories that have arisen to explain away Jesus' bodily resurrection. Here are some of the most popular ones to look for. The legend theory. The resurrection accounts were actually legends that surfaced years after the time of Christ. The wrong tomb theory. After the angel told the women, he is not here, see the place where they laid him, probably pointed to the tomb next door, but the women fled in fear. The hallucination theory, Jesus' disciples only thought they saw him, but they were really hallucinating. The stolen body theories, the disciples themselves or the Jewish or Roman authorities stole Jesus' body. The popular swoon theory. Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He just fainted from exhaustion and blood loss. The coolness and dampness of the tomb revived him. The Passover plot. That Jesus thought he was the Messiah and plotted a detailed plan to concoct his resurrection. But it was foiled when the soldier speared him and he died shortly after. 
These theories just distract us from the Gospels, which are authenticated by 1 Corinthians 15, written before the Gospels. Friends, the truth is, the resurrection account in Matthew 28 reveals three plain statements made by the angel to the women in verse 6. First, he is not here, and the he is Jesus. Second, he has risen. And third, just as he said. Any alternate theory that claims that it was not Jesus himself who rose from the dead, like the twin brother theory, Jesus' twin brother took him down from the cross and claimed to be the Messiah in his stead, makes the angel and Jesus out to be liars. Friends, listen to some statements made by Jesus or about Jesus before and after he was crucified. Remember Peter saying, Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God? Right after, Matthew says in 1621, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. In Luke 24, the angel said, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and then the third day rise again? This just reinforces the truth that he is not here. He has risen, just as he said. The women didn't go to the wrong tomb. The disciples weren't hallucinating. Jesus didn't swoon on the cross and then revive. The disciples didn't steal his body and then fabricate a story that he rose from the dead. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Friends, the truth of Jesus' resurrection was so important to the first disciples, it was the benchmark of their first sermons. Peter's sermon in Acts 2 includes, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Shortly after, Peter adds, The patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But... He was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Friends, if Easter, and you know I prefer Resurrection Day, means anything to us today, it means that eternal truth is eternal. 
You can nail it to a tree, wrap it up in grave clothes, and seal it in a tomb. But truth dashed to the ground will rise again. Truth does not perish. It cannot be destroyed. Truth may be distorted. Truth may be temporarily silenced. But truth has been compelled to carry its cross to Calvary's brow. But with the inevitable certainty that after every Black Friday dawns the truth of the resurrection morning. It may be Friday, but Sunday's coming. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Friends, a three-year-old girl was as anxious for Easter to come as she had been for Christmas. Her parents took her shopping for new shoes. She said to her father, I can't wait for Easter. So her father asked, Do you know what Easter means? In her own sweet three-year-old way, with arms shooting up and a smile on her face, she shouted at the top of her lungs, Surprise! Friends, what better word could possibly sum up Easter, Resurrection Day? Surprise, death! Surprise, sin! Surprise, sad disciples! Surprise, modern man! Christos Anesti! Christ is risen! Anesti Alethos! He is risen indeed! Well, we're at the end of today's program. I hope it's been a blessing, and it would be my honor to pray for you as we all seek to live out the crucified and resurrected life of Christ, who is risen indeed, the path to the passion of the Christ paid off. Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. Listeners like you keep this program on the air, and your support is appreciated. Thanks for listening today, friends, and remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com. 